Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with all of you. Well, let's begin our morning with prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we are grateful today that we have this Lord's Day to worship you, to set aside the routine of the other six days, to focus on your goodness to us. Lord, as we study your character in a more in-depth way today, I ask that you'd uh, be with my thoughts as well as my words. Lord, may this be a morning that glorifies you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, good morning, everyone, and welcome back. We're already in week four of this module, and uh, today we're going to pause our journey. I think I've mentioned it a few times that really this particular module, this particular class is nothing more than the journey of God's words from Him to our hearts mind, and minds. And today we pause the journey a little bit and we focus specifically on the character of God's Word. Now we've said that God is Scripture and Scripture is God. So when you're studying the character of Scripture, you are studying the character of God and they are indeed one and the same. So we'll pause today and we'll take a look at the Word in Scripture itself and just, and just pause that journey for, for one week. Our big word of the week is the first blank on your handout. The missing word there is plain. It is a word that I struggle to say, so I will not use the word much in the class today, but it's perspicuity. I practice that. Perspicuity. It's plain to the understanding, especially because of clarity and precision of presentation. And of course, this concept, which I'll call clarity right now, is one that was one of the major tenets of the Protestant Reformation, right? It was that the Word of God was to be translated in the language of the people, and that it was to be in our hands all the time. It wasn't something that only the clergy of the church should have and should be reading and should be uh, doling out to us, that indeed it's something that, that could be understood by anyone who had the Holy Spirit dwelling in him or her. So perspicuity, one of the tenets of the Protestant Reformation and, and, and our big word of the week. Uh, flashback to last week quickly, if you remember nothing about last week, and you remember that there were donuts, that's a good start. What we want to remember about the donuts is not that we had donuts, but that Fred the Baker was the character in the commercials for Dunkin' Donuts in the 80s and early 90s. And Fred the Baker would always say what phrase? Who can help us remember what? But he didn't say it like that, did he, Josh? All right, Josh gave us his best melancholy voice, which sounded very artificial because Josh usually isn't like that at all. So time to make the donuts. And that tone should never be our approach to reading God's Word. It should be the verse we focused on from last week, Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all of the day. We should never think of it as drudgery to focus on God's Word. It should be a source of great joy that we're given this day to study His Word. All right, so this is a, a, a graphic that we've brought up in several of the classes. God's divine voice is given primarily to prophets and apostles in a way they could understand it and ultimately gets to the written word. And a point that we make over and over again during this module is there is no loss of fidelity. The lordship attributes of God himself are present fully in his word. So when we have his word, we have him. In fact, he's present when his word is read. So today, here's our outline. 
It's pretty substantial. There's a lot to cover. It is uh, six attributes of God's Word. God's Word's inspired, inerrant, clear, necessary, comprehensive, and sufficient. And in those six, there's quite a bit of overlap. But we'll take each one one by one, and we'll use all 45 minutes well today doing that. So let's start by God's Word being inspired. The word inspiration, which was our big word of the week last week, the Greek word. Does anybody remember what that word was? Starts with a T. Theopneustos. That was last week's big word in setting up this week. The word inspiration is found only once in English translations of Scripture. It's 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So there is no better passage to take you to right now to begin the case that God's Word is inspired. Uh, that Greek word theopneustos, depending on your translation, if you use the King James, it says given by inspiration of God. ESV talks about it being breathed out by God. So when we talk about, from a medical standpoint, someone breathing in and out is expiration and inspiration. And so this, this word closely ties to the very breath of God. Uh, in, the, in the NASB 95, it is inspired by God, but some, some would argue that that's not the best translation, that what the ESV uses is breathed out by God to give you a very sense that it, they were his words to start with. In other words, they came out of his mouth first. Frame's definition, these are the next two blanks on your handout, is that inspiration is a divine act creating identity between a divine word and a human word. So every human being who ever heard God's voice and was charged with recording it had to have it in a way that he understood. So, so whatever God's voice is, ultimately inspiration is that ability to identify and connect the divine word of God with a human word that one would speak and was ultimately translated into our language. Okay, but a couple important points about his word in terms of how that inspiration happens is God's word is not merely propositional. He conveys not only information, but tone, emotion, and perspective. So you've often heard somebody say, well, the Bible is an owner's manual for life. And in one sense, that's true. But in another sense, it's not. Have you ever read an owner's manual? All the ladies raise their hand and say yes, all the guys say no, right? I don't read owner's manuals. The first 20 pages tell me not to use the electrical device in my bathtub, right? I, I just tend to ignore it. But, but Owner's manuals, by definition, tend to be fairly dry. What God communicates to us is not only information in his word, but tone, emotion, and perspective. Oh, how I love your law, Psalm 119, 97, the way we started today. There's, there's, no word, there's no sentence like that in an owner's manual, right? So we have tone, emotion, and perspective in God's words. He's inspiring not only the words, but also these additional items. Uh, our author says that at no point, a different point here, is that at no point in this redemptive history is God content to give thoughts or ideas to his spokesmen without giving them words in which to express those thoughts. And that's an important point as well. So God's word gives us tone, emotion, and perspective, but he doesn't leave it up to us for the prophets and the apostles to figure out what that's supposed to be. In other words, verbal inspiration refers to God giving the words of Scripture to the writers, not only the ideas. So if this is a hard concept to wrap your head around, think about God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. He didn't say, I've got two basic concepts here. I want the people to love me, and I want them to love each other. You figure out what you want to do, maybe come up with ten ideas. That's not what happened. 
God gave Moses word for word what he was to write down. So while his words contain tone, emotion, and perspective, he does not allow the human being to assign the tone, emotion, and perspective to it. He gives the actual words that contain those things. Could I ask someone to read this passage for me? All right, so Peter acknowledging that these are the words of Jesus himself. How about Matthew 24, 35? A volunteer for... The words of Jesus himself, right? There's a permanence to his words, and this is documentation that these are his words. How about 2 Timothy 1, 13? Okay, so the words of Paul being given to Timothy, but speaking... Uh, to the inspiration of these words. One more, Jude 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's my last one. Yes, inerrant. So, Scripture is inspired, it's also inerrant. In other words, it's always correct, it's never wrong. I was talking to someone out of state this week, not, no one who goes to our church, no one who doesn't even live in Ohio or Michigan, and I was emphasizing with that person who confesses Christ that what God's Word said is never wrong. And that's something we may take for granted, but something that we always want to be reminding ourselves of. Can I ask for a volunteer to read John 17, 17, please? Praise God. God's word is truth. Anytime you're reading God's word, you are reading truth. Anytime you're reading anything else, there's a question about whether it's true or not. So we, we talked about this. In fact, last week we talked about how the words God and Scripture are actually used interchangeably at times. We also know from the sign on the front of our building that Christ is the word. God is Scripture. Scripture is God. If you have something outside of Scripture that's an error, the error comes from one of two places, either deceit, time did you get home last night? It's like 10.30. I heard the garage door go open at 11.30. Right? So sometimes someone speaks in error because they're trying to deceive someone. Those of you with kids get this. Those of you who are kids get this also. And then mistakes. Right? Two plus two is five. Wasn't trying to be deceitful. I just did the math wrong. Well, God never deceives. The next blank on your handout. And God is never mistaken. So since Scripture is God and God is Scripture and He never makes mistakes and He never deceives, then in fact, Scripture is always true. It's always perfectly correct and accurate. doesn't mean we always understand it, but it is always correct. So let's take a look at a few passages to reinforce this. Could I get a volunteer to read Numbers 23, 19, please? Okay, so all of us have times where our words and our actions don't line up. Sometimes not because we're being deceptive, sometimes just because we're wrong. God's word is a source of ultimate truth always for us. When we are confused, we always go back to God's word because it's the only thing that's guaranteed to be true. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Describing that chasm between God and us. We can't take the errors and the sins that we commit and compare them to God. God is holy. He is perfect. Titus 1, 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie 
promised long ages ago. It's a truncated sentence, but it's a complete verse. God cannot lie. Not many times where you say God cannot in a sentence, right? But he actually cannot lie. It's not a part of his character. All right, then Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. Can I get a volunteer to read this, please? So an additional dimension from God's word, its word, of course, is truthful, but it's not simply dead words that are, happen to be accurate, right? It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces us, soul and spirit, a distinction that's even hard for us to understand, right? Of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How many times have you read God's word and said, oh, that's me right now? Or just, you, just, you are... God ordains that you read the very thing you need to hear that morning or that night, and you're convicted of the fact that you are just out of line with his word. All right, an important concept, and I think in the other classes, this is the one, this is the concept where, where people struggled with it more than any other slide I show throughout the six weeks, and maybe I'm setting you up here, but I, I don't mean to. I, I want to spend just a minute on this because it's a point that our author makes that's an important one, and it's the difference between truth and precision. And we may think of those two things as being exactly the same when, when quite frankly, they're not. And, and, he, and the author makes this point because there are people who will say, well, this gospel says this, but this gospel doesn't include that. And, of course, the different gospels were written with different purposes in mind. But there are some people who will start pinging on you as you speak to the inerrancy of God's word, and they'll say to you, well, what about here, about this, what about that, what about this account in Matthew and this account in John? And so it's worth spending a minute talking about the difference between truth and precision. Two plus two is five. Is that right? Is that true? No. Is it precise? No. Where's Lexi? She moved, didn't she? Is she gone now? She's out there. All right, Tanner, you're, being, you're going to fill in for your wife. Okay. Tanner, you're young enough, I can ask you this question. How old are you? Uh, 26. All right, 26. Tanner's 26. Do we believe that? He's not in an age where people lie about their age very much. Look at him. Is he 26? We can buy that? More or less, did I hear? Okay, we're, we're going to go at 26. Tanner, how old is your son? Uh, seven months. Seven months. Okay, how did you, you, gave your, you gave your age in years, yeah. but you gave his in months. Yeah. Why? Uh, okay, so if he was 13 months, would you say a year? If he was 18 months, would you say one? Well, I guess Okay. So there's a certain age where you're expressing the age in months and years. When's the last time you expressed your age in months? So I don't do it either. I don't like the number. Yeah. <laughs> but you're never going to have me talk about how many months I am. Yeah. Okay? You needed more precision in describing the age of your son than you did in describing your age. Because nobody, nobody's going to say to you, okay, you said 20, 24? 26. Well, are you 26 and a half? You know, are you, you know, are you about to turn 26? At, at your age, you stop rounding up, right? Kids round up. At some point, you do stop rounding up. Right there, you gave truth in both answers, but you gave different amounts of precision in each answer, okay? All right. No, so two plus two. Okay, how old are you? I'm behind on my slides. All right, I know a guy. Another story 
to make the distinction between truth and precision. Todd, I need your help with this one. I'm not going to ask your age, by the way. Don't ask mine. I won't ask yours. All right. True story. I want you to tell me what you think about the story. So all you got to do is listen and just let me know what you think. True story. Man I know, someone who's very, very dear to me, lives in Ohio, had a teenage daughter. In 2020, one night on a weekend, his teenage daughter took off with an older guy. True story. They left and didn't tell anybody where they were going. The family learned later that they spent a night in a hotel room in Cleveland. What are your thoughts? What's, what's, what's going on in your head as you hear that story? Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. You didn't mention some other guys in the other classes mentioned killing someone. You didn't mention that once. All right. Aaron chimes in with killing. So. Yeah. Okay. So we have, we have ang some anger. <laughs> we have the thoughts of of concern, about deception. Okay. Here's the story. Everything I told you was, it was precise. However, it wasn't true. Okay. That story is my daughter Morgan. She was 19 years old when she got married. She got married in 2020. I could have given you more precision and said it was August 1st, 2020. I could have told you they got on the Ohio Turnpike at 10.35 p.m. I could have given you more precision and I would have not, still not had truth. I told you it was a man I'm very fond of, talking about me. No one loves anyone more than they love themselves. I live in Ohio. She, married, she took off with an older guy. Noah's two weeks older, I think, one or two weeks older. <laughs> so I, everything I said was precise, but I misled, unless you figured out what I was talking about, there wasn't a lot of truth in what I said. I could have said, I don't even know what hotel they stayed. They could have stayed at a Holiday Inn, right? I could, I could give you more precision, but if I didn't tell you what I just told you, I didn't have any more truth. So precision is not a guarantee of truth. And so when you say, well, I wish the Bible were more precise. Well, that's no guarantee of truth. What Frame says is we should remember that Scripture is, for the most part, ordinary language rather than technical language. Inerrancy, therefore, means that the Bible is true, not that it is maximally precise. The proper method in theology is not to withhold judgment until the problems are solved. And by problems, I mean those problems are ours, not God's. It rather to believe that God's personal word despite the problems. How we deal with things in Scripture that don't seem to line up for us is ultimately resolved about where we put ourselves relative to God and His word. If we think we're above His word, we'll say, ah, I don't know if I believe, this doesn't seem right to me. But if we put ourselves in the proper posture of having His word up here and having us somewhere down here, then we say, you know, I don't understand that, but the problems that I don't understand are problems in my heart, not problems with God and His word. In fact, well, let's, let's take a look at this. This is, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, he being Abraham, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Now, if we added more precision to this passage and said he was 99 or he was 101, does it make anything, would it make it any less or more miraculous about what God did in giving Isaac to Abraham and Sarah? No, it doesn't matter. About 100 years old tells you everything you want to know. That is a miracle that happened. <laughs> Right? So don't get hung up 
on looking for precision in Scripture when you already know that truth is there. And resolve the fact that you have times where you say, I don't know how this lines up. And say to yourself, the problem's mine and not God's. Your posture relative to Scripture is incredibly important. Our problems with Scripture, we have finite minds, finitude. The questions we ask, right, how can he be both one and three? How can we ever wrap our heads around the Trinity and really truly understand it? How can he be eternal yet enters into history? I don't know. I'll just tell you, I don't know. How can he be good yet he permits evil? How can he be sovereign yet he holds us responsible for what we do? It's a lot of things that are hard for us to understand. The problem is our finite brains. And then the other problem we have is sin. Remember from Romans 1 that we have a temptation to repress the truth. So in us, in the midst of getting on a high horse and saying, oh, I don't know about Scripture here, it says this, and over here it says this, and I'm not sure how I figure it all out. We have finite brains, and we are inclined to sin. So that makes us disqualified to be commenting on the accuracy and the truth in God's Word. It is true. It is ultimately faith that requires us to accept that. All right, Scripture is clear. There's my word again. It's, it is the blank on your handout here, perspicuity. Plain to the understanding, especially because of clarity and precision of presentation. All right, I need to pause from our author's book for a minute because he assumes that everyone who reads his book is very familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith. Next blank is, is the word Westminster. I know that we have people in all different walks in their Christian walks, so I, th I, th I think it's important to pause here and speak a little bit about the Westminster Confession. This is a cover from one of the first printings of the Westminster Confession. And, and it's a term we don't use anymore, but the men who came together to write the confession were called divines, which I always find is a name that I would never apply to myself. And I think, well, they called themselves divines. That just seems kind of weird. But you will notice that in big, bold print, they call themselves divine, and then humble is up there in real small print at the top. <laughs> so we, we know how they feel about themselves. Yeah. But, but it's a phrase that did have, a term, divines, that did have meaning at the time. What is it? It's a Calvinist confession of faith. And what's a Calvinist? Calvinist confession is a, is a study of theology that, that puts an emphasis on the sovereignty of God appropriately. Uh, this was drawn up by the 1646 Westminster Assembly as part of the Westminster Standards to be a confession of the Church of England. And interestingly, it was actually a governmental, a civil body, the English Parliament, that called upon learned, godly, and judicious divines, so they called them divines before they called themselves divines, to meet at Westminster Abbey to provide advice on worship, doctrine, government, and discipline in the Church of England. The meetings lasted over five years and resulted in the Westminster Confession, a shorter catechism, and a larger catechism. And the confession is nothing more than a systematic exposition of Calvinist theology influenced by Puritan and Covenant theology. So we could have just as easily used the Westminster Confession of Faith to structure all these truth and life classes as we could have uh, as, as, as using uh, Frame's theology book. All right, so what does it say? The Westminster Confession of Faith is broken up into chapters, and then within a chapter there's subchapters that have a decimal. So from Westminster Confession of Faith, 1.7, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but also but the unlearned in the due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. It was written so you could understand it is all it means. God's Word was written so you could understand. That doesn't mean you don't listen to good preaching and good teaching and, and be involved in that to help 
increase your understanding, but it means when you wake up tomorrow morning, the Holy Spirit's dwelling in you and you are reading God's Word. He gives you the ability to understand it. Could I have a volunteer to read Deuteronomy 8.3 for me, please? Okay, so we live by what proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Is that the way we approach reading, studying, meditating on God's Word? But this is going to direct us in every way. Even things that we think are so specific that God's Word doesn't address, we're going to get everything we need. And it's going to be clear to us. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. How many times do you think about what God's Word does, how it affects you? God's word is clear for his children, but there are those to whom the word doesn't mean anything. And we've spoken about the prophet Isaiah before. And in fact, he was called to speak, to speak God's word to God's people with the knowledge that most of his people at that, living at that time would absolutely ignore it. It was recorded for those in future time who would. May I have someone read this passage from Isaiah, please? There's a sense that God's Word does something every time it's read. It either hardens hearts or it uplifts, encourages, and sustains those who are His. So His Word is clear, but it's clear only for His children. Here's another example of that, if I could have someone read this for me. So that, that's, that's that clear delineation of how God's Word works in the hearts of those who are His children versus those who are not, and it is specific and clear. So we've talked about the Lordship attributes in, in many of our classes. We've talked about God's controlling power. How does it manifest itself there? Well, God predestines who has the Holy Spirit to illuminate Scripture. And then there's God's supreme authority, His omniscience, to whom much is given, much is expected. To the extent that you've been given God's Word, and have His Spirit dwelling within you, suddenly the bar goes up for you. How you interact in the workplace, what you say, what you think, how you spend your day is affected by being called as a child of God. And then finally, God's presence, that sense that He is God who dwells among us. The Word is very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. Never think of God's Word as distant from us or impossible to follow. All right, and then Deuteronomy 30. I know we're going to need to keep moving here. For the commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and your heart, 
that you may observe it. So a, uh, just a expounding of that previous verse with a few more verses before. Let's skip over this slide. Uh, we want to move on to God's word being necessary. And every once in a while, our author puts something down that made me chuckle in the midst of preparation, so I'd always quote him. To say that scripture is necessary is simply to say that we need it, which I didn't find incredibly helpful, but I found it amusing. But, uh, we, but, but it is true. We need God's word. If we're not reading God's word, that means we don't think we need it, right? Jesus' word is necessary. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 8.3. Uh, Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we know in that particular passage that Satan even tries to use God's word incorrectly in his argument. And Jesus corrects him in that. All right. Why is it necessary? Without God's words, there are no covenants. So the next blank in your handout is the word covenant. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded to you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Whenever God gave a covenant, it was in writing. If instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out my commandments and so break the covenant, again, truncated sentence, but a complete verse, um, there's a consequence of not following these words, which is necessary, the, the negative consequence of the covenant. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The words are necessary to have. Now, we won't read this entire passage, but again, there is a necessity to God's word. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So, what we, what we say is that God's word is necessary, and, we're, and this very word in verse 21 is that uh, we're told that simply saying God's name, and people use God's name in vain every day, and that doesn't mean that they have any, uh, any right to consider that heaven will be theirs, but even those who think they do, uh, but the ones who do the will of the Father. We're, we're told that just saying something isn't enough. And again, our words and our actions don't line up. So out of necessity, we're taught here in this portion of Scripture that our actions are ultimately, actions inspired by the fact that we have a heart who can't obey Him, will ultimately be the ones who enter into heaven. So faith comes from hearing. Necessity also means if there are no words, there's no salvation. Salvation is the next blank in the handout. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We come to faith by hearing these words. So the fact that they're written down is necessary for our salvation. I'm going to quote our author one more time here with some blanks. The work of Christ is not something that human wisdom could have devised, nor could a mere human report of Jesus' death and resurrection tell us what we need to know. The atonement comes out of the wisdom of God's eternal plan, and its meaning could only be given in divine words. Those words are critical for our salvation. All right, we're getting to the home stretch here. God's word is comprehensive. What does comprehensive mean? Of large scope, covering or involving much, inclusive. Um, It is easy, especially as a new believer, to think that something written 2,000 or 6,000 years ago wouldn't necessarily be helpful to us. But that's not true. God's word's comprehensive. Does it cover how you should drive in your car? Well, yeah, it does. 
Does it discover, does it, does it give you guidance on who you should marry? Yeah, it does. It doesn't mention the word car anywhere in scripture. It does talk about marriage a fair amount. So if you were giving godly counsel to someone and they said, what do you think about me marrying this person? What would you say to them from God's word? Where would you go? Proverbs, Proverbs and, and where in Proverbs would you take them, Nate? The whole book. Read it and come back to me. Right, right. So if the guy, if the friend of yours was dating someone contentious, you'd point him to that portion of scripture, right? right. Say, this is your future. Do you like li- <laughs> Do you like living outdoors? <laughs> right. So it it is helpful. What else? Someone's considering, and it could be a good situation, it doesn't have to be a bad one. What would you say? Well, where'd you go in Scripture? You know the couple, you know the guy, you know the girl, and one of them's considering marriage to the other, and they're talking to you about it. Where, where else do you go in Scripture? Second Timothy. Okay, and what, what, would you, what would you give them from there, Josh? Speak to them about how the woman submits to authority. Okay. Yeah, if they both have that understanding going in, it goes a lot better, doesn't it? Even though it's not easy and it gets messed up all the time in all of our marriages. Yep, absolutely. So we have principles in Scripture that are comprehensive enough. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So let's, let's give a few examples. First of all, the Old Testament. Just look at God's covenant with Israel alone. He, he gives guidance there on the people's calendar, their holidays, their diet, their clothing, their economy, their employment practices, education, marriage and divorce, civil government, prayers, and priestly sacrifices. There's an awful lot of detail in there, isn't there? It's an awful lot of guidance. It is absolutely comprehensive. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God. The Lord is one. Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. So the comprehensiveness or the com- Comprehensiveness, comprehension isn't the right word I want. Comprehensiveness of these, of these words is actually on two different levels. Number one, in that book, when you've got the Bible in your hand, it is comprehensive for guiding the decisions of your life. But it's also comprehensive in what it calls you to do. Do you see the recurring word in this verse? It's all. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. God is all in on giving you a comprehensive guide to your life. He's calling you to be all in and be as comprehensive in your love with him, for him and your heart, your soul, and your might as he is in giving you a comprehensive book. You see how this is a two-way street. Now, we always fail in our comprehensiveness. We repent, Lord willing, but we always fail. The book is comprehensive. The words are comprehensive. But what we're called to do means we're all in as well. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our might. How about this? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So here we see comprehension in another way. Where do we go? The people that are fun to talk to. No, we go to all the nations. What do we teach them to observe? All that I commanded you. So everything you're supposed to be doing that God commanded you, you command all people in all nations to observe all that God commanded you to observe. 
And oh yeah, you're not on your own. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's a comprehensiveness at several levels here as you study this. Okay, so then we jump to the New Testament. Jesus commands, uh, don't deal just with repentance, faith, and, faith and worship, but actually an incredible list. Treatment of the poor, sexual ethics, marriage and divorce, anger, love of enemies, fasting, anxiety, hypocrisy. You, you dwell on the words of Jesus himself to his disciples, to the people he spoke to, those who listened and those who didn't listen. Incredibly comprehensive in how it guides our lives. Isn't that amazing? If you start thinking about it and cataloging it. All right, so comprehensive can be thought of as whatever. If you have a teenager living in your house or you are a teenager living in your parents' house right now, the word whatever is part of your vocabulary. And it's often a word used to express consternation or disgust or not coming up with really something intelligent to think of after the person said something, so you go, whatever. But whatever in Scripture means something very specific. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does that mean? I glorify God on Sunday morning in worship. No. Yes, but not only. I glorify God when I pray. Yes, but not only. I glorify God when I read his word and meditate on it and dwell on it. Yes, but not always. The comprehensiveness on our part here comes in several whatever statements in Scripture. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You are to brush your teeth to the glory of God. You are to go to sleep at night to the glory of God. You are to love your neighbor to the glory of God. You are to drive your car to the glory of God if you were looking for God's guidance on how you're supposed to drive. Like, I don't want to put the little fish emblem on the back of my car because then I have to change the way I drive, right? That's what we think. Yet we're called to do all to the glory of God whether the emblem's on the back of our car or not. Another whatever statement. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So when are we supposed to be thankful? Always. The Christian should always be thankful. Whether it's your words or it's your actions, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. There should be no time you can't say, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus right now. Not just when you pray, where we often put that at the end, right? Doing, I pray this in Jesus' name. We're actually to do everything in the name of Jesus. Our prayers can remind us that we're supposed to do it all the time, but we're to be comprehensive in whatever we're doing in word or deed. All right, one more, and I'll get off this one. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. Even if there's people offering to pay you $5 an hour more than you were getting paid a couple years ago, and suddenly your, your work is in demand no matter what you do for a living, you're still expected to work heartily. A lot of employers right now are finding it hard to find employees who work heartily because suddenly employees are being stolen from businesses and places all the time because there's such a shortage of workers. That dynamic is not an excuse for us to be slackers. The child of God should do his work heartily, whether he's splitting firewood in his home, whether he's cleaning a bathroom, whether he's working for someone else in exchange for remuneration. We are to work heartily and think of our, the, God as our ultimate boss in that situation. Our work is to be done as if we were doing it for God himself, because we are. All right, we're going to end with this. God's scripture is sufficient. It is sort of the corollary to comprehensive. I guess it's a corollary to all these. Comprehensive means it's complete. Necessary means we need it. Sufficiency means it's all we need. And I'll put an asterisk next to all. I'll, I'll, I'll be, I think I'll be fair there. But 
I guess maybe it's four and six that I think in my mind align the most. Where something's necessary, sufficient means it's all we need. Let's, let's just spend a few minutes on that because you could have some arguments about that. Scripture contains all the divine words needed for any aspect of human life. So the words are divine and human there. So we have divine words for every aspect of our life. But, but let's qualify that. Again, I go back to the whole, the, the Westminster Confession, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed to the world, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the world, which are always to be observed. There's a lot of words there. It says, yeah, Scripture's sufficient, but we still have to use common sense. We use Christian prudence, right? We use the brain that God's given us to sort these things out. No idea what I just did. Okay. So I'm going to another theologian right now named K. Scott Oliphant for his thoughts on sufficiency from 1.6. Scripture gives us all that we need in order to know what salvation is and how it's to be gained. No, no one argues with that typically. Scripture gives us all that we need in order to know how to glorify God in every aspect of our lives. We just read those passages. We have all we need, for example, in order to know how to glorify God in our daily lives. No extra or supernatural word is needed beyond that given to us in Scripture. And this is number three. This is right, right where, the, where it seems like there's gray area. Those things necessary for glorifying God that are not explicit in Scripture may be deduced by good and necessary consequence. It's a whole class right there, right? What is good and necessary consequence? We're to use the brains God's given us to figure out how to apply His Word. Frame says this about that portion of the Westminster Confession. We are not forbidden from seeking information outside of Scripture, but we are in a need of no additional divine words. We're not waiting for the Book of Mormon to come along sometime later and give us more revelation that we need. We have that. Now, to say that Scripture is sufficient is not to deny that other things are necessary. And that's the key linchpin, I think, between sufficient and necessary. In particular, we need the Spirit to illuminate the Word if we're to understand it. So, of course, there's more. We'll talk about that next week. It can be difficult to determine in specific terms which actions will and will not be, bring glory to God. There are times where we're lost, right? We just don't know what to do. Natural revelation, again, Christian, Christian prudence, give us important guidance. God's Word gives us the foundation. There are times we have to make judgments based on what His Word says. Sufficiency. How do you know when revelation is final? And we know that not everybody in the Christian world agrees upon this. When redemption is final, revelation is final. So there's nothing more to be written about redemption. We know what Jesus did for us. That work is done. We know how we are to respond if we are his children. I'll leave you with this verse from Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. These verses from Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. In fact, I'll ask for a volunteer who can see that from your seat to go ahead and read it for me. God,
Okay, so, so we're given scripture there to speak to the fact that this redemption is now done. Jesus is in heaven and he will return and he has done the work that needs to be done for his children. However, there is something that happens in terms of the Holy Spirit dwelling in his children. Where we can all think of a time where we were convicted and our conscience was affected by something we were doing that we shouldn't do or not doing that we knew we should do. That revelation in that form continues. Jesus left so the Holy Spirit would come to help us in that way. That's not in contradiction to anything we've said today. That is the Holy Spirit coming to guide us in those specific situations. So when we say we have this broad concept in Scripture, how do I apply it to 2022 and everything that's going on? That's where the Holy Spirit is with us. We pray that we would be convicted when we're out of line with God's Word. And in some cases, there's matters of conscience where some things are right for one person and not for another. And that's where the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, who, who was left, he was left with us when Jesus left the earth to provide us that guidance. That's not additional revelation. In fact, we'll talk about this more next week. And so if you're, if you're, if you're troubled or struggling with this one a little bit, I'm going to ask you to give me one more week and we'll, we'll unpack the work of the Holy Spirit as we, as we continue the journey. But we have all that we need in written form, which is what essentially is being said today. So God's word is sufficient for us for what we need. All right, we are right at the top of the hour, so I'd like to go ahead and close this in prayer. Lord, your, uh, your word is perfect, gives us everything we need. It's necessary. It's always accurate. And with all the things around us, Lord, that are troubling us, that are wrong, that are changing and flowing, we know that we have your word as a foundation because when we have your word, we indeed have you. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would have a conscience sensitive to the Holy Spirit, that he would uh, encourage and guide and challenge and guard and counsel us every minute of every day. Father, I pray that everyone in this room would live a life that gives you glory in all they do, whether they be brushing their teeth or, or witnessing and speaking of your goodness to those around them. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.